Can you tell me why? So this is a, a breaking down of a barrier. Can you tell me why? The solution could very well be... Can you tell me why? All of which really begs, I think, a bigger question. It just triggers all our instincts of wanting to know what happens then. Why do universities exist? I know a hell of a lot more now. I mean, how many academics do you want to hear in one day? So, welcome to Can You Tell Me Why, the podcast where we find surprising answers to difficult questions. My name is William Verity. And I'm Hannah Laxton-Kuntz. Now, Hannah, this time it's over to you. We've got a big issue, particularly for millennials such as you, although actually it's probably a <laughs> big issue for me for personal reasons. What have we got this week? Okay, well, we're talking housing. And the funny thing is, is that at At the beginning of all of this, I thought to myself, there is no way I am ever going to want to own a house at all. I enjoy my little renting life, being able to have that flexibility. But I've had quite a nightmarish turn of events when it's come to renting. And, you know, buying a house is looking quite rosy at the moment to me. However, yes, as you said, the housing market is ridiculously crazy at the moment. I'm sure millennials aren't the only people facing these kinds of predicaments. And so I have gone on the quest to find out how am I ever going to be able to afford a house. So the, the big question here, which I'm hoping that you're going to answer for me, is we're living in this one of the most sparsely populated one of the richest continents in the world, and we can't afford to have a house to live in. It's just crazy. What's going on? I know. I, you mean, you're going to have to listen to find out, but it, as it turns out, there are so many factors at play here. I thought this was going to be an episode that I could just ask one or two experts and I'd be able to get the answers I wanted, but it turned out every time that I asked a question, another one popped up and I needed to answer that one and so on and so forth. So it's definitely a bit of a roller coaster ride, this one. All right, so roller coaster ride and investigation. Uh, this is something that is, uh, affects almost all of us. So let's hear what you find out. It's kind of unattainable. I haven't even thought about looking at moving or buying a house just because. It doesn't seem like it'd be within the realm of possibility. I think it's, like, really hard for people to expect us as millennials, the typical millennials, to, like, have their life together and really just not be able to afford it. And it sounds so stereotypical millennials to be like, um, sorry, but you paid, like, eight grand for a house and now you're getting annoyed at us for not being able to afford it. But holy dooly, like, really, that's exactly what it's actually like. So far beyond me. When I see my friends, 22 year olds, buying a block of land or like put a down payment on a house or you know, something like that, I'm like, that is an actual world away from me right now. Like, I am wondering, can I afford my next grocery trip? I think it's like on my list of things to do, but you know, the same as you know, owning a car or taking my family to on holiday. Like, Sure, it's a thing that I would like to do eventually one day, but it's not even a thing that I've laid the groundwork to lay plans on. Like, it's just a make-believe dream. (laughs) But unfortunately, this isn't a dream. This is the housing market and how our current generation feels towards it. I would say expressions like unattainable, unaffordable and ridiculously expensive are what springs to mind. But surely things haven't always been this way. Which brings me to my mission my quest to take this mess that is the housing market and try and make some sense of it. Can she do it? 
Well, I guess you're just going to have to listen and find out. It's part of the great Australian dream and it's a part of the dream of, uh, of people living in many countries and I think um, for many people it's a sense of having a home, of having an attachment to a particular place as an emotional part of it. I think there's possibly also a financial and investment part of it as well. That there is Simon Veal, Professor in the School of Humanities and Social Inquiry and expert in economic and business history. I'm hoping Simon's research can give us a better idea of where this began in order to get some kind of understanding of what we're seeing today. People like that idea of having a place that is their own, that nobody else can can throw them out of, that they feel secure and they can bring up a family or, or, or whatever. I mean, I'm not saying that you're wrong, but I feel like that comes under the assumption that, you know, when you go and you buy a house, that that is now you, that's your, yours. And maybe that was the case once upon a time. But we know now a lot of people, when they do buy a house, they're taking out incredible loans and they have to pay off a mortgage. And, you know, you might not own your house for 20, 30, maybe more years. It's a very long time. So I guess why do people feel so compelled to do it? <laughs> Well, that's a good question. And I mean, you know, people can spend 20, 30, 40% of their income just servicing their loan. And then you have all the risks of home ownership. Something might go wrong, a a leaking pipe, uh, destructive termites or something like that. And you may well be close to retirement before you own your own home. I'd just like to interject here someone, someone for whom retirement is actually, well, the retirement age is just coming over the horizon here, um, that... I am nowhere. I, I have. I have been a home owner in name, but I've never owned my home. Mm. I've always owed a huge amount of money, and having gone through a separation last year, I'm now almost back to square one. Mm. So, it's not just the millennials, is what I'm saying. It, it, it may be that, that some people are making have made huge amounts of money from just sitting in their house, but I think it's a society wide problem i mean i i bought we bought a house at a relatively good time and we've made a fair bit of money out of it i guess except now that we're having to split it in two and so on um i'm right back in the rental place no i'm i know my mom's the same they bought a property at a very good price you know 20 years ago but same thing again my parents split and so my mom had to pay my dad out and she I remember she, her telling me she just would stew over it and wake up in the middle of the night thinking have I done the right thing I now have an incredible amount of money to pay off as a single parent how on earth am I going to do it and I mean everybody wants to be able to retire and be in their own home but you know, you have to work for longer and at the end of the day, I, I, I mean, I feel like that my mum will end up selling the property and then using the money that she gets to pay off the mortgage. Yes, and go and live in a hovel somewhere yeah. in, the, in the bush. <laughs> <laughs> People just want to do that. They just want to feel that it's theirs. It's, a, you know, what do you have in life that you can say is your own, your family, your friends? The place where you live, I think, is very high up there as well. So people are prepared to make incredible sacrifices to achieve that. But surely it hasn't always been like this. I mean, houses were easier to buy in the past once upon a time, right? Well, I don't think it's ever been easy because, I mean, as you said, people for a long time have made huge commitments in order to own their own home. 
and so we know that you know there has to be some sort of relationship between how much people earn and how much housing costs and the economists say that's probably about somewhere between four and five six ratio in other words uh, price for house might be the equivalent of four or five times that annual income and and that's been the case for a long time so it's not that housing has become less affordable necessarily it's that in certain places particularly in city centers today where everyone wants to live that housing is a lot more expensive than say if you want to live out in the suburbs and 20 or 30 years ago everyone wanted to live out in the suburbs more and more land was released more and more housing was built people had their quarter acre block as they saw it mm. but today more and more people want to live live in the city and there's been some expansion of opportunities there old docks and factories and warehouses have been converted into housing so that's a good thing but ultimately there's only a certain amount of space in the center of the city where everyone wants to live it's partly lifestyle it's partly the greater economic opportunities exist there as well so why do we keep seeing prices climb particularly in the city and why do people still fight to buy these properties i mean the sort of the concept of wanting to be in the city is not just um, an economic thing. I think people like the idea of the lifestyle. So you could say, well, I'm sorry, but you know, your first home's going to have to be out in the suburbs. So you know, it's, it's, it could be bad expectations as well. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, and it's a point that hasn't really been often made. Is that, is that in the last 15 years we've seen a real shift between about 15 years ago, everybody wanted to move out, everybody wanted to have you know, a house with a yard, backyard, backyard cricket, yep. all of that kind of stuff, and now in the last 15 years, it's the kind of it's flown the other way because people get just get sick of of commuting huge distances to their jobs, and now it's mm-hmm. now we're in aggregation. Talking to the um, general manager of Wollongong Council a couple of weeks ago, and he's saying the same's happening in Wollongong. Mm. That, that uh, before people wanted to kind of move out of the city, and now actually people want to move in, into the city. It's a, it's a it's a new culture. Yeah, I guess it's it's changing in the way. Um people imagine their lives to be as well I suppose you know myself for spending a lot of time on social media a lot of pages that I follow are very catered towards you know those tiny little units and you know what kind of nifty ways that you can store as much stuff in a very small space because a lot of people are living in tiny little apartments and you know you see the rise of places like Ikea people are starting to cater their lifestyles for you know little studios or one bedroom apartments where they're going to be living in the inner city. Mm. I mean that said of course uh, houses in the suburbs are still astronomically expensive they're not going (laughs) down in price so in some ways it's a false argument isn't it I mean houses everywhere are Are expensive yeah. yeah. The other thing which, of course, is important is good public uh, transport infrastructure so that people could live in uh, areas where uh, housing is less expensive and commute into where more of the jobs are in the city. So that relies on public investment in that sort of infrastructure, which I think generally we can say has fallen behind hand. So I think it's more difficult to commute to work than it was in the past. So either you buy up big in the inner city and cop the cost of living for your dream job or get yourself something more affordable further out and try and find a job there, or pay for public transport, that is, if you're willing to take the gamble. Between you and me, renting forever is looking pretty sweet right now, but clearly owning your own home has to have its advantages. So one of the, you know, apart from all the emotional attachments of owning your own home, one of the benefits of um, having a house is that when you come to sell it, there's no capital gains tax. Okay, so you 
people can invest, they can extend their house, they can make it look nicer, they can put in expensive fittings or whatever, and they know all that investment will come back to them at some time in the future. So you'd assume limited supply and high demand would only ensure that we have dark days ahead. Well, that might not necessarily be the case. What's going to happen to property prices, as you say, the interaction of supply and demand is really critical here. What we do know is that uh, interest rates are at record lows. So in some ways, the affordability problem for first-time home buyers is not so much the repayments, but obviously if you, build, if you buy a very uh, expensive house, that is still a problem. It is finding the deposit in the first place. We, and, and particularly since the global financial crisis, uh, you really need 10 to 20% deposit to get into the market, whereas before then it, you could have got in on 5%. But, you know, uh, so that makes it more difficult. Now, if interest rates rise, that's potentially, potentially actually quite good news for, for people looking to buy because that almost certainly would help to ease the pressure on prices because high prices would be unaffordable and so that will bring down the price of, of houses. Mm. Deposits will come down because it's a percentage of the final price. Repayments will go up because, of course, the interest rate is higher, but you've got a smaller loan. So that may well work as well. So is it all really worth it? Look, you know... It depends what you want to achieve. If you want to be a young person, you want to buy your first property in inner Sydney or inner Melbourne, then, yeah, it's going to be really tough, OK? If you're prepared to wait a while before you buy or you're prepared to uh, buy further out, then it's not that bad. You can still get good priced properties. There's still a lot of, you know, suburban Melbourne. You can still buy something for 300000 for example, at a house and so forth. But, you know, so many people want that in-city lifestyle that then there's only so much supply there. I mean, who knows? There's a lot of guesswork involved in these things. If you really want to buy at the moment, then maybe you need to buy a bit further out. If you're not desperate to buy but you're sort of interested, then think about investing in something else at the moment, I'd say. But do you think that really has me satisfied? Not for a second. I have a very strong suspicion that there are other factors at play here. And there are a couple of things that I want to take a closer look at, starting with the concept of affordability. Different, there's different dimensions to affordability. That's how much you earn and how much you spend. Mm. And in how much you spend, uh, on which items of your budget you have to spend your money. That there is Pascal Perez, the director of the Smart Infrastructure Facility at the University of Wollongong. He believes that to truly understand housing affordability, we need to look at a number of other factors that are currently at play. So if you look at at the issue from that perspective, it means back to transport. If people have to uh, uh, pay less for transport, uh, whether it's public or private, then this is more money they can spend on something else. And if their houses or apartments are still expensive, that's a bit more cash they can put on their mortgage or, or their rent. Now, the narrow definition of affordability, of course, is income versus the level of your mortgage or your rent. Mm. Um, And this is a much more difficult issue to crack. Uh, And I don't think that um, the digital city will contribute very much to the issue because they are very powerful economic drivers that, for the moment from my perspective, are totally out of control. If I heard Pascal Perez right, he's he's talking about the the digital city. What does he mean by the digital city? So when they're talking about the digital city and the smart city, he's talking about all the different factors that 
are implemented to create what is a working city. So we're talking about infrastructure, we're talking about you know roads, we're talking about public transport, we're talking about jobs and where those different offices are. We're talking about the price of electricity, we're talking about the cost of living and how people can afford, how all those different factors are integrated and working together or against each other. Okay, so really when he's saying digital city, he's talking about a well-designed city, a city that's designed for the needs of the people living there. Yeah, and when you think about Australia, very often that's not how a city comes to be. I mean, think about Sydney. It's been continuing to grow and grow and grow at an alarming rate. Very little of that is planned in the sense of, you know, maybe people will be planning one tiny little suburb or one tiny little pocket, but are they thinking about how that suburb is relating to another suburb or, you know, what are the needs of the people in this area and what are the needs of the people in the area that's adjacent? All right, let's get back into it. Now, as dismal as this sounds, Pascal and his team at the Smart Infrastructure Facility are working to fix this, using the notion of smart cities to make them more livable and affordable. It's about better planning for cities and and everybody knows and and planners of urban planners have known for a long time that the key will be to take most of the work of the job sorry uh, closer to home so if we can reduce commuting time if we can reduce congestion in public transport and on our roads and streets that's where the cities will become more livable, more productive. We're going to waste waste time. We're going to waste le- less. less time uh, in uh, in congestion mm. or in, in in transport, and the quality of life will increase. Um, having smart parking systems in cities, as such, will never solve the congestion problem. Mm. It will ease marginally the parking issue which is just the bottom end of it people took their car from their home in the first place Mm. so that's where probably uh, having a connected city where people can work from home or work from a a shared working space uh, in their suburb or in between the suburb and the and the city Mm. Uh, so partly to blame the the planning and 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 management of the public transport we can probably do better yes um Probably also a bit like back to universities, you know, if you want uh, uh, for for students and staff to have a a, a better use of parking, uh, maybe we could start looking at the timetables of the courses and classes. Uh, So same with with flexible work in the city. So if not everybody had to to feel like they they have to be at nine at work to get their first coffee in the morning, maybe we could ease the problem as well. It's a catch-22. All those people who can't afford to live in the city are all coming from surrounding suburbs and regions all at the same time, putting huge amounts of stress on the public transport system. So when the traffic is absolutely terrible and the trains are full and constantly running late, more people come around to paying those super hefty inner city prices and then we're back down to supply and demand all over again. It's, it's, it's a good old... American Expressway syndrome uh, that was well demonstrated in the US more than 20 years ago that at the time the, the motto was okay, if we want to fix congestion in, in our American cities just build this massive six lanes on each side, motorway then we're going to fix the problem, guess what? They just all get full. <laughs> the, 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 the problem is worse because yeah, there, there's, there's a law of nature, nature 
uh, hates a void, emptiness. <laughs> and so <laughs> by magic, within a week, a month, a year, these six lanes, uh, express words, were full to the rafters. And, and to some extent, the logic holds on for, for this development and, and population growth based uh, kind of planning. So I'll build it, they're going to come. Mm. And so what? Uh, yeah, they're going to have to drive their car. They're going to have to get, get, have a job. So I think that's a, it's an important point. But so, and one that I largely agree with, like I actually do live way out of Sydney and I do commute in. Um, mm. And one of the great things about living way out of Sydney is that you, you get on at the end of the train line, you, you always get a seat. <laughs> but I know it's also the opposite because I've done the same. You're the person who then has to stand for the million stops when you go to get in, on in Sydney. I have to stand until it gets to like Helensburg before there's enough people who get off. Well, no, your problem there is you're not getting on at the at the end at, of the at both ends. No, is, it's I true. do the entire trip, so I always get a seat. Thank you. Lucky. Um, Pascal's right about building freeway, and the reason I do that is because I don't want to drive in. I can't park. Hmm. Um, I don't want to, you know, driving particularly. In and out is just stressful, stressful and yeah. horrible. I'd much rather sit sit on a seat and listen to a podcast like <laughs> this one. But his argument is not quite as pure as it seems, though, is it? Because otherwise, you would just you wouldn't build any roads. And okay. clearly, if you don't build, build any roads, you're going to have massive traffic snarl up. So there's got to be some kind of happy medium here. Yeah, and I mean, I I was dealing with a similar kind of dilemma when I was commuting to Sydney. Half of me wanted to drive because I felt like I had control. You definitely have a seat. You can choose what you want to listen to. You can stop if you need to, all that kind of thing. You don't have to wait for a specific train time. However, it was very stressful sitting there in the traffic knowing, oh, I need to get to work on time. Am I going to make it? But then vice versa, you get on the train. It's absolutely jam-packed. I felt like I was in in a in a London somewhere jamming myself onto this train knowing that if I don't catch this one I'm going to be late to work I just mm. I can understand why people live in Sydney yeah life Sometimes. is hard <laughs> so this is kind of modeling we're doing here at smart where we, we're moving away from trend-based simulation for for regional growth so we build a model here for the Yaguara where We've got an economic model, a demographic model, and a land use model, and a transport model talking to each other all the time. Mm. So the economic model cannot say, oh, the future is rosy. We're going to have two, three percent economic growth in this region, and we're going to create all these jobs if your demographic model doesn't give you the right people to fill the jobs. And if the land use planning and zoning doesn't give you the land to get the commercial area or the industrial area you need, all the things I've mentioned here are, are... a second to the big economic drivers, and uh, I'm not an economist by training, but uh, and there's been heated debates and still heated debates at Parliament about what is causing uh, the, the, this total glut we have. Um, is it because we don't have enough houses, or is it because things like negative gearing are just hitting the system all the time because you've got people whose money you can spend it mm. regardless of how much it is? because they know they're going to recover their money at one stage mm. because people will have to rent these houses anyway or these apartments. Uh, I think it's the, the truth, as usual, is in between. It's in the middle of the bridge. And we have to fix these problems uh, before we look at all the other things I've mentioned. 
So there you go. I hope that answers some of the questions you have about housing and affordability. But don't think for a minute that it ends here. I still have a heap more questions, like what the hell is with housing estates and how on earth am I ever going to afford to buy a house? So the mystery continues. Does she find the answers and crack the code to the housing crisis? Well, you'll have to tune in next time to find out. Thanks for that, Hannah. I'm left... um, How am I left with that? I'm left a bit like kind of... uh, It's bittersweet. Yes. It's like it's... It's like I've teased you with somewhat of an answer, but it's not quite everything that you hoped or wanted. No, (laughs) and I don't feel like I'm any closer to owning a house. Well, that's exactly how I felt. That's that's why I needed to do this second episode, because I just felt like... The more, yeah, the more times I asked a question, the more questions that raised itself. And yes, I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I have a heavy heart now. <laughs> kind of like maybe the future is bleak. I mean, that's it, that's the message I'm getting out of this. Is that it's maybe it just is all too hard. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Um, in in the next episode, I speak to um, an. PhD student from the University of Wollongong who's studying housing estates, which I thought would be really interesting because they're just popping up everywhere. And to me, they're just so unappealing. Why do people keep wanting to buy into them? I would love to know. So um, chatting to him at the end, he's a similar age to me. I think he's about 25 or 26 years old. And he he said something that was really interesting about turning this whole idea on its head. And you'll have to listen next episode. Because, Can we get a quick grab? Yeah, Come on, sure. let's have a quick grab. I think that we're just we're just really jaded with the situation. Um, you know, people talk about generational tensions or whatever else. You know, that, that baby boomers have got houses and we're never going to have one. Um, that we're going to be generation rent um, and you know just continue renting forever. Um, and maybe if our rental system looked a little bit more like Europe's, where you can have five-year, ten-year rental agreements, um, maybe that would make more sense. You know, um, so. I think we're in a really interesting place for bringing about some form of change in this story. All right, so you have been listening to the podcast, Can You Tell Me Why?, where we have surprising answers sometimes to difficult questions. (laughs) We already know what's happening next week because we are going to solve this problem of why nobody can afford a house. Of course. If you'd like any more information about this episode or anything else we've discussed, head over to The Stand, which is stand.uow.edu.au. That's stand.uow.edu.au. I'm Hannah Laxton-Koontz. And I'm William Verity. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.